obviously, we are moving forward in our study of salvation. Last time, we had been talking about the why we accept salvation, had fruitful conversation about the first why is faith. Anybody audacious enough to try and give me a brief definition of faith after last week? Kind of take the rest off, so to speak. Carson. There you go. Hebrews. All right. Nailed it biblically. Well done. (laughs) Absolutely. And so what we also talked about the fact is that if we had to kind of boil down faith, we're talking about the fact that we know and understand the right facts about Christ, life, death, burial, resurrection, who he is. We also affirm those things. We say that they are true, but it goes beyond that and enters into that willful obedience, i.e. trust, and trust in Christ alone. Maybe you just had to put up a word just for today. We don't need to go back over it by any means, but talking about our trust, our willful obedience and trust unto Christ alone. But that brings us to our next point, page seven, I believe in your handout, if I'm not mistaken. And that is our next point in the why. is repentance. So when we talked also yesterday, we talked about the relationship between faith and repentance in the regards of, as a whole, the why we come to salvation can be considered our conversion, right? And we talked about that double-sided coin of conversion. On one side, you have faith. On the other side, you have repentance. Faith and repentance working together make that coin of conversion. We had some fun with that analogy as well. Um, But now we need to move on to this point of repentance and understanding what we're talking about here. So let's open up with this really good but succinct definition that you see in your handout here. When we're speaking of repentance, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow over sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. One helpful kind of diagram with relation to faith and repentance that I was kind of led to. No diagram's perfect, but you can kind of think of we have sin, we have us, and we have God. Now, in our previous study of, for instance, election, we talked about how we have a warped nature. We have a sinful nature. So our inclination and our direction is always towards our sin. That is what we desire most. In our broken state, which is why we need Christ, right? But with repentance and faith, we begin to talk in terms of a turning away from sin. And that first turn, we can call repentance, okay? That is that turning away from, but in turning away from something, you are logically turning now towards something. So what's the thing of which we are turning towards, more like the person whom we are turning towards, and that's God. So in our turning towards God, we could almost think of that where our faith plays in. Now, something important that is needed to be understood with repentance is that it involves all of us. And what I mean by that is in our personhood, we don't have full legs, that's fine. 
<laughs> it involves our mind, it involves our heart, or what we would deem that to be emotion. It has to go beyond that. And it has to now move into, that's the only way I can draw it, our will. We have to do something, right? So this is something we're going to kind of flesh out as we move through our discussion. But it's going to involve all of us. So here again, we turn from sin and turn in obedience to God and his commands. And this is done from the heart. It is genuine. Let's look at our scriptures here. Let's kind of talk about some of these areas here. The emotional aspect. Could I get a reader first? Or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. Second Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So this one obviously is weighted with that emotional aspect. We have sorrow over our sin. And before we get just there, I want to point at the mind. And what I mean is, is if we think that repentance also involves our mind, how is it that our mind and our emotions, for instance, this sorrow, how is it that there is a relation between the mind and our emotions, i.e. sorrow? What do you think maybe that link is between the mind and our relation? How do they work in conjunction with one another? You have to accept something is wrong to be able to feel that sorrow. So, I'm, I'm listening to this book called Toxic War Masculinity by Nancy Piercy, and she says that uh, usually abuse comes from people who like are egocentric and feel good about their anger and so it's impossible to feel sorrow or repentance about anything when it like you just can't tell that you're in the wrong and so it's impossible to feel sorrow if you don't if you don't recognize or you don't mentally accept that there's that, that at least something is off yeah that's great that's like perfect yeah and that's exactly what i'm fishing for here is that the mind has to be informed of sin, right? If I see that abuse, or I see my anger, well, it's not bad. Well, then I'm not going to experience sorrow for that thing. We have to understand mentally how heinous our sin is, how bad it truly is, but also the fact that we have offended who? Who is our sin ultimately against? God. So in light of who he is, we understand our sin to even be more horrible right and how bad it truly is so we acknowledge sin for what it is and we also acknowledge that we ourselves are sinners therefore that fuels that emotion now we know what to be sorrowful over okay so we acknowledge the sin now in this particular passage there's an interesting point do you see it down here it says that he what I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful. That's interesting. But what's the reason for Paul's rejoicing over us being sorrowful? 
that seems kind of like if I had a friend and he was sorrowful over something, I would rejoice. Like, that seems contradictory. But what do you see in the passage? What, why is he sorrow? Or why is he rejoicing over the sorrow? Because it led to repentance. Exactly. Yeah. And because the sorrow shows that they're not only informed about God's will, but they're agreeing with it. Mm-hmm. They're agreeing with God and siding against themselves that that sin was an offense against a holy God. So it's a they're now informed and persuaded. They're siding with God. That's good. And he makes the point that without that sorrow, right, even if you know what you're doing is sin, without that sorrow of agreement, it, there's no repentance that actually comes. You have to be brought to agree and know, I truly agree with God in his assessment of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're made sorrowful. We agree with what God has informed us of. We agree with that right judgment. So another interesting point to this is not only that being sad for sad's sake doesn't really get you anywhere, does it? And if we kind of contemplate that there, there's this interesting point at the end. This, how would sorrow of the world produce death? How he tail ends that. That's an interesting concept in and of itself. Let me get some thoughts there. What do you think about that? How does sorrow of the world produce death? Okay. The temptation would be to justify what is happening to you via means of worldly sorrow. Um, Job chapter 40, verse 8, talks of it when when God's questioning Job, and he says, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? So when we're all exalting ourselves in that sorrow to say, why would this happen? That's a place of high view of yourself and low view of God and the circumstances surrounding whatever may be you may be experiencing and uh, that would lead you to death in that that trail of thought and mind and that's not a godliness seeking God it's yeah. opposite that's a good point and it kind of comes to that I'm the victim Like it's not my fault that A, B, and C happened to me and I always like to I remember hearing on that, I think it was MacArthur who kind of instructed on that, that he said, if we're going to take the stance of a victim, or we're going to allow somebody to be a victim continually, now, let me clarify, that's not to say that people aren't truly victims, that they have had bad things happen to them. We're not annulling that, and we're not saying that then justice should be done in light of that. Okay, we just need to lay that groundwork right there. But when it comes to the gospel, and when it comes to our repentance, we have to realize that We can't play the victim card and say, I'm innocent. It's not my fault kind of thing. Because if you're always the victim, then somebody's never going to repent of that. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, Kate. There's also well-intentioned sorrow that leads to death. I mean, the greatest example, and this doesn't come from me, my parents raised me with telling me this one, so, you know, all credit goes to... My mother over there and my father. I'll tell you after he's done. (laughs) (laughs) So what I'm about to say, no matter how wild, it's it's. it's, It was all her. All my mother. Okay. Um, But but that sorrow that leads to death, um, uh, 
can be seen in Judas Iscariot. He, they, nobody can tell me that he wasn't truly saddened by the fact that Jesus was was killed because of him. Because Judas hung himself, or hanged himself. I'm pretty sure it's hanged. But he hanged himself for, he did. Yeah. for the action. Um, but that wasn't... But he didn't repent by by going to the apostles and saying like I, I, I sinned like like I, I condemned our master forgive me mm-hmm. he truly was sorrowful he, he was heartbroken over what he'd done but instead of his sorrow leading to repentance his sorrow led him to taking it into his own hands and, and him killing himself and I think odds are he didn't he didn't go to heaven um, I, I, I don't think he, he was given salvation because he chose to, his sorrow led him to to kill himself and not to not to seek repentance for the change. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, there was a slight repentance. He gave the money back or whatever, but there wasn't there wasn't real like life changing soul repentance. Um, I'll take credit for that. Mom <laughs> <laughs> <Round> one. <laughs> well done, mom. Nailed it. I've heard it said, and correct me if I'm wrong, but someone said that worldly sorrow is just kind of like you're sorry for being caught, mm-hmm. and you're yes. more like uh, a fear for the consequences, kind of like what Judas, guilt that comes from that, rather than actually going, uh, you, you sinned against, you committed high treason against the holy God. So the whole definition of sin and that repentance that's worked from the Holy Spirit isn't there. It's a worldly kind of a shallow. I'm just afraid of you know the consequences rather than fear from God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's actually a very interesting point that you bring up, Will, because there's truth in that. That obviously the world usually is sorry. And so I'll give you an example. We're sorry over the consequences of our sin. Let's say. Somebody is caught in sexual immorality, okay? They repeatedly keep doing this sin, and that's the way they're living, and they're just fine with that. Until, let's say they catch a disease of some kind. Now they've suffered a consequence, and they feel terrible about the consequence. Oh, man, right? They're experiencing that sorrow, but it's over the consequence. And the interesting part of that is if it doesn't lead to repentance... And you kind of just that consequence away, i.e., let's say you give them a cure for said thing. Now the consequence is gone. What are they going to do? They're going to reciprocal back to the sin because there's, they're fine with that. They can continuously get caught in that loop of sin because there's no repentance. They haven't fully turned away from it. So, very good. You literally stole my Judas analogy. So that was good. Bye. <laughs> And I think, too, that there is, like, even sometimes, like, sin creates guilt, right? Mm -hmm. So even when there's not a consequence, I think it is pronounced when when we're suffering the consequence, like a pronounced consequence, but but sin is, is, breaks our relationship with God and with others, and and, and inevitably, we we carry a burden of guilt. And so if we're carrying that guilt, like, pronounced consequence, or not, mm-hmm. we we are burdened. Uh, we're burdened under that guilt, mm-hmm. and we do we carry that, and that is like we have a lifetime of unforgiven yep. 
guilt, and, and that's that's death, mm -hmm. right? Having having to live with that. Yeah, there's no hope with worldly sorrow. Yeah, there's never hope. Just day in day out, caught in it, living in it. Horrible. Yeah. I think hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and I think that's a place of worldly sorrow. That's unaddressed. There's anger, there's bitterness, there's resentment. I think uh, oftentimes people, you know, when they're confronted with their sin, they can be humbled or humiliated. Yeah, and humility is they're thankful that it got exposed, that they can be right with the Lord. But I think the humiliated become resentful, resentful towards the person who brings it up. And, um, yeah, things are taken away from them, but they're inwardly seething, self-pitying. Um, they're upset, you know, at the consequence of sin. And, and there's often, um, you can often tell the difference by their disposition towards the person who brought it up. Are they thankful for that person? Or did they say, well, they had a point, but the, their tone, their whatever, you know, they are resentful that it got brought up, that they were humiliated. Um, they're still into themselves. I think one last thing too is like in your in your picture. Sometimes one of the most helpful things is not just to focus on stopping whatever the sin is, right? It's to, to focus on pursuing God. So so for believers you can have a a heart that you truly believe that you want to repent and you're just trying to figure out how to not do something how to do something you ought to do instead of thinking about, you know, how do I grow closer to God? How do I pursue God? What does that look like? Who is God? What is he like? How does this make me more like him? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's something where there's just as much energy in, in terms of what are you turning away from, but then what are you focusing on? Where are you focusing? All that movement is now towards God, his ways, his will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Focusing, focusing on what you ought to talking about you turn away from your anxiety and then you focus your thoughts on whatever is good, whatever is pure. Yeah, to follow with that, just um, knowing the attributes of God has helped me to, to know who God really is from a biblical viewpoint rather than just a cultural viewpoint and also what sin is too, breaking God's commands. Um, antinomianism seems to be really common in the church where kind of do away with the Old Testament, you know, and the definition of what sin really is, which is breaking God's commands mm -hmm. and committing high treason against him in that aspect. And guilt is just a byproduct of our sin. It's not sin itself or selfishness. Those are all just byproducts of, of sin. So getting to real, true definition of who God is and what sin is helps help me. So, what about our will, the volitional element, that willful choice? We've kind of, we've bridged into it here, but let's take a look at Isaiah 55, 7. Can I get a reader? Thank you. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon like that last part, he'll abundantly pardon. Abundantly 
So here, like I said, we've kind of bridged into some of it, but what is the wicked and the unrighteous man doing here in this passage? This is the action of which they are doing. Let the wicked, what? Forsake, forsake his way. Forsake his way. What about the unrighteous man? What is he forsaking? His thoughts. So they're forsaking the way of which they're living their lives, and it goes even into the mental aspect of even my evil thoughts. I'm forsaking those as well. I'm getting rid of it. This is where we talk about that turning from sin is also a bending our knee to Christ as Lord. It's not my will I so wish anymore. It's his will I wish. It's him being Lord. So we forsake the wicked way and our wicked, unrighteous thoughts and turn towards the Lord. And this is that turning aspect of repentance that we've kind of been ruminating on right now. Interesting note, um, in the Bible, when it comes to like the word repent, oftentimes if you do like your word study and stuff, you'll actually find out that it's not always necessarily verbed out as a turn, but it's in a changing one's mind. So just kind of give you a little bit more of a, more head knowledge there of that understanding. But we see that here with even our thoughts. I'm changing my mind. So it consists of a change in attitude towards our sin and then turning away from it. Now, how? Yes, Steve. So uh, I just had a question on, this kind of goes back to the Judas example, but yeah. what would repentance have looked like for Judas? So it's really funny you say that. That's literally what I'm about to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Steve. Yeah, Trace, high five. Seamless transition. Wow. Because, I mean, was he just, once he betrayed Christ, mm-hmm. was there no repenting at that point? Was there no going back? Was there was there no hope for him at that point? I mean, what, at what point did he have no hope? Or what, mm-hmm. what would repentance have looked like that could have saved his soul? Mm-hmm. Let me buffer your question with a question. We'll make this really interesting. <laughs> but it, maybe, we can, maybe we can discern that. And if not, we've always got Pastor Dave. <laughs> so, <laughs> no pressure. Can I use my one phone a friend? <laughs> Actually, I might need that later. So we'll see if we can do this. So my question, kind of building off of Steve's, is in us as individuals, or let's say you outwardly seeing others, how do you think repentance is actually seen? How do you know they're truly repentant? Because we know it's happening internally, right? We don't physically go get something or given a plaque. There's an active action of turning away and taking steps to turn away from something. So let's say it's like struggling with like a sexual sin, mm-hmm. then they're putting down like barriers and taking active steps to turn away from it. They're making an effort. Mm-hmm. And not only like putting around barriers, but also like pursuing holiness, pursuing what is good, what is right, becoming more, wanting to become more Christ-like, not just sinning. Like, like not just turning away from the sin, but also doing steps <coughs> to change. No matter how many things you put in place to block yourself from sinning, if you really want to sin, you're going to find ways. And so, so the real, I mean, obviously, you know, putting structures in place to stop you from sinning is amazing and, and good. 
and absolutely you should be doing that. But I, you know, just expounding on what Leo said, so using Leo's statement as a basis, um, it bears through you need to pursue active heart change mm -hmm. because unless unless there is unless there is that heart change, um, unless your your fundamental desires change, you're None of those blockers are really going to stop you. None of those things that you put in place are going to help if you yourself are desperately trying to get over them. <laughs> you know, this is there needs to be there needs to be a heart there needs to be a heart change, where all of those things that you put in place are mostly useless. As you're saying that, something that's popping in my head is kind of the idea is probably not so grand, but a really bad mean dog. You put him behind a fence, right? Now, having the fence is a good thing. We would want that. But the problem is you still have a mean dog, don't you? You need to change the bad dog to a good dog. And I just now <laughs> called us dogs. So or, that's cool. or you keep hopping over the fence to pet the mean dog. Yeah, well, yeah. Let's <laughs> Shame on you. Um, <laughs> Judas. Judas, was there, CV you said, was there opportunity for him? Is that kind of What would perhaps, it look like? What would his if he had repented? Like? Well, think about, too, I mean, we have a little bit, um, we have a little bit of example of Peter. I mean, he betrayed Jesus. And so you get, you get a little insight when you think about Jesus appearing to Peter. Like, what did that look like? And Peter, it says Peter was grief, you know? He was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And he said to be my sheep. And after saying all this, he says, follow me. So there's this idea, right? He's, he's restoring him and he's repenting from that. And he's, he's following the Lord, you know? So mm -hmm. that's one way it could have looked mm -hmm. is Judas, I'm going to follow you, Lord. You know, I was wrong. That, yeah. So you get an example with Peter. And it also makes me think of Paul, right? Persecutor of the church. And yet, brought low, repents, and just a rock star in the New Testament. A guy that we look up to, right? Wrote the mass majority of the New Testament. But he's following like what Scott's saying, Christ. So, what would Jesus or Judas's repentance look like? I think we would see that heart repentance, and it would be a new Judas walking. He would have recanted of that. I would say. Is that how you would kind of... Yeah, I think he would have it? killed himself. I think there would have been a response of faith where he would have believed that Jesus would have risen from the dead. And then I think there would have been, like Peter, a, a desire for restoration with him and pursuing Jesus. And so it was hopeless repentance. You know, it, was hope, it was hopeless sorrow. How does the volitional, uh, volitional element play into... Destination, <laughs> and if this is like way too big, and I could talk to you after at some other point, that's, that's also fine. Maybe before, we, as far as like, how does our will yeah, involve? Yeah, like the wicked forsake his way, mm -hmm. the unrighteous man his thoughts, and then return to the Lord. So there's obviously an active element into it, but we also believe that God does predestine people to sit. You know, he has chosen, he does choose. Mm -hmm. So how does how does us 
how do we forsake our way and return to the Lord if the Lord's the one who, who picks? Like, yeah, I yes. think I knew where you, like, <laughs> yeah. that free will element, kind of like what we talked about with oh, election, oh, kind of, sort of. Yeah, there's, there's just that special element where it's not just, it's not just free will, because free will is free will according to our nature, and our nature is sinful. So obviously our free will usually is just, we reject God, and then God chooses <laughs> to save us. But then th- this says that there is an active element in, in us, in our, like, from us in our own our own return to the Lord. Is this after God has saved us? Mm-hmm. And we must forsake our way and return to the Lord? How, how does how does our own forsaking our way and returning to the Lord play into God's choice of deciding to save us? Mm-hmm. Leo, did you have something to add? So that? with that, does um, like being predestined, that allows us, like God has chosen us, so that allows us to choose Him, but without him doing that, we wouldn't be able to choose God. So mm-hmm. does, it, does us being predestined allow us to make that choice to follow Him? Mm-hmm. Or yeah, and this is kind of where you get into the weeds of election, so to speak. And this is like what we talked about with election, where in some shape or form we have to allow tension to exist in the regards of. Remember, we talked about God's sovereign will. He is sovereign over anything and everything. Nothing is outside of His will. And our will was the little circle within God's sovereign will. What we have to kind of just go with, and my reply to it, whether it be necessarily a good one or gives you comfort, so to speak, is that we, within God's will, still do have choice. We still do make decisions, and we do still do that freely. Which is the mind-blowing aspect when we kind of see these two and we're like, wait, they're in confliction with one another. That's not how scripture brings them about. They do exist. And we do think of the fact that God Almighty, I mean, the most powerful being ever to exist, will exist, has existed. He knows everything. I mean, all the attributes of God that we speak of, can he still operate and still operate with our free will. I think our human mind says no, but that's limiting God and his capabilities because I think we do have a will. We do make choices. So looping that back into here with the wicked forsaking his way, I think my answer would then come to the fact that it is by God's grace that he has intervened. He has enlightened the sinner who is going towards sin and now rightly convicted them, given the correct information of what sin is, how bad sin is. And now we make that choice, that willful decision to forsake our ways. But it still ultimately resides in the upper categories of it's God's will, it's God's grace that has been enacted upon us. But it's, I, I would say it is okay to allow that tension to exist. And I think it is something also when we, when we discuss elections, sometimes we have to simmer in it. We can't just nail it down in 45 minutes and say, hey, I'm good with it. It's actually a doctrine that I wrestled with and struggled with and had to for a time. And it just, I just had to ask God to enlighten me to it and to settle my heart in it and kind of mature along and now be comfortable with it by His, by his grace. Well, yeah. When we say, Jason, like, um, salvation is a gift, mm-hmm. faith is a gift, repentance is a gift, it's all scriptural, but we have to receive it. So that's our 
God's done it, but we have to still receive it. It's not like we're doing that, we're receiving it yet. So, yeah. is there something more to that? Yeah, well, no, I mean, I would, I think I would agree with that, and that's why we also have to get down to the point, like what we talked about, that we're not robots. It's not just fate. There is a volitional aspect to us. We do make that choice. I have to affirm that. Right? And he doesn't, God doesn't just call believers to repent. He calls everyone to repent. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they can't, but that they won't. Mm -hmm. So I think the question was blending those categories. But... I am never condemned because of something I can't do. I'm condemned for what I won't do. And I'm not saved because of something I have done, but because of something God has done for me. And those two categories have to be kept separate. Um, so I look at someone like Judas. And Judas, he did not kill himself because he couldn't find true repentance, but because he wouldn't. Because true repentance for Judas would mean, I'm going to take on myself the full guilt and shame and weight of this. I'm going to be exposed to everyone I've ever known as a complete fraud, as a selfish... I mean, like, he would have to live with that shame for the rest of his days. He would have to be lumped in as a follower of Jesus at that point and potentially killed and tortured like he just saw Jesus be tortured and killed, right? He would lose everything he had. He didn't want to live out that repentance because he wouldn't, not because he couldn't. I think he saw, he saw what he had done. He saw that it was wrong. He saw that he let himself down and everyone else, but he didn't see... And God offers me mercy if I'm willing to walk this path. Yeah. So, yeah, he he's not damned because God didn't save him. He's damned because he would not be saved. And that comes into our what we talked about with those uh, uh, objections to election. Like, is God unfair? Is it not right that we had a chance? We would say, no, he is absolutely fair. And we absolutely did have a chance. And one anecdote that I'm kind of thinking of here is that I think... In the Judas conversation, we also have to make sure that we don't limit the power and ability of Christ's atonement for us. That like, well, Jesus or Judas did too much. I mean, he betrayed the Son of God. That's that's too much. There's no way Jesus could accomplish that. That's wrong. Chuck that out the window. Okay. And that goes also, a little bit side note here, is that if you ever have a conversation with somebody and they say, well, I've done too much, you don't know what I've done, I can't do this, and we have those conversations, and that can be a genuine emotion and thought, is that people think they've went too far. Not true. Christ, uh, trying to think of the song. Uh, it's not going to come to me. Uh, mercy is more, right? His ability within his redemption can cleanse any sin. That's what makes it so amazing. Mm -hmm. Okay, Judy. Well, in the case of Judas, feel like Mike, you know, he'd have to own up to his horrible sin that he did against Christ, and he wouldn't be able to live with it. I think that God gives us the ability to live with it if we are truly repentant of whatever our horrible sin is that we have committed against God. He gives us the mercy and the grace to get through it when we are repentant, truly repentant. 
Yeah, and I think something that comes to my mind with that, Judy, that you're talking about is think of us as the church. Are we just a bunch of people that are sad all the time and super depressed? Mm -hmm. If anything, it is us who understand sin the best. And yet, one of the defining characteristics that we have is joy. We're a joyful bunch, aren't we? Right? And we should be. But think about that. The fact, like, what Judy, what you're saying there, right? He gives us the ability to understand rightly our, our sin. We are super seriously convicted with our emotions. But we can repent. We can be forgiven. Okay. All right. Did I mention Isaiah 16? I don't think I did. It's not in your handout. It's an extra for me. Okay. Because I just wanted to talk about this. I thought it was a cool passage demonstrating that bringing us back to the fact that when we have repentance, we can see it in somebody. And that idea of um, being able to see it through our actions and our deeds uh, was led to Isaiah 1, 16 through 17. Just kind of a decent summary that has good, good uh, pieces in it. It says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Some of these are these outward things. Some of these things, like in the beginning, is that us abandoning sin, forsaking our wicked ways, and now we are in the pursuit of Christ. All right, let's see if we can cover another little section here. The vertical element. So think of it as in our relation to God. Revelation 16.9. Somebody got that one? Can I get a volunteer? Yes. Men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. <clears throat> and they did not repent so as to give him glory passage is heavy. It makes me cringe when I read that blaspheme the name of God. It's like a hard no. <laughs> I mean, that's horrifying. But catch the tail end, that repent so as to give glory to God. So does it give God glory if we do repent? I see a lot of heads shaking. Yeah, it does. It does. It does give God glory if we repent. Because, I mean, in so many respects, we could talk about that in several instances, but he is now able to demonstrate his mercy. Or he is demonstrating his mercy. That gives him glory. He can show the power of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the full atonement. That gives him glory. I mean, there's so many elements of God that are on display when we repent that it does give him glory. And we also, in the repentance, affirm him as Lord. We need to always make sure that we affirm him as Lord. Okay. Some people will kick the Lord part out. I um, think that gets under Lordship salvation. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a heavy MacArthur topic. Um, mm -hmm. His book, I think uh, Gospel According to Jesus, I think, flushes that out. So I won't go too heavy into that. But the idea is that we also need to affirm him as Lord. I like this quote here when we're talking about that. It's not just adding Jesus to the pantheon of one's idols. It's not what we do. We don't just use him as our trump card or get out of jail free card amongst our many other idols. 
It is a wholesale destruction of the idols with Jesus reigning supreme. Everything else has been utterly demolished, and it's only Christ in our mind now. Okay. So God's offer of salvation is free for all, but to receive it, we must repent. We must turn away from our wicked ways and commit ourselves fully to God and his glory. All right. See a question? Movement out of the corner. Okay. All right. We're doing good. All right. Let's move just a little bit further. We can go ahead and kind of bridge this next topic here. Um, need too much more forward here, actually. So we're moving from the why now. We've covered faith. We've covered repentance. But now we're going to move into the last section here. And that is the what we get in salvation. And if some of you have kind of already flipped through, we get a whole lot in salvation. I honestly was kind of taken aback because when I read this section and I kind of flipped to it for the first time, there's that piece of me that doesn't necessarily think in terms of, well, I get something? That almost seems selfish in a way. It's like, I'm the one that should be repenting. How am I the recipient of something? But we do. Once we have repented in our salvation, we get a whole lot. And it's super cool. So, our first one here that we're going to talk about is our union with Christ. I don't need to draw anything here. Not yet. Okay. Union with Christ. So when we're talking about our union with Christ, we are honing in on the fact that we are summarizing several different relationships between believers and Christ. So through which Christ, or excuse me, Christians receive every benefit of salvation. So this relationships include the fact that we are in Christ. It's very common, right? Christ is in us. We are like Christ and we are with Christ. Think how often when you read the New Testament, when you're, re- excuse me, reading your Bible, there's all this conversation of this familiarity with Christ. We're in him. He's in us. Um, I kind of came across a cool statistic that said, if you kind of just look up in Christ, you're going to hit that within the New Testament about 90 times, roughly. So you think it's in there? Yeah. Right? I mean, that's super cool. This is a very common thing when we talk about this unity of Christ. Let's kind of move forward, though. So even Jesus himself speaks in these terms. Think of his high priestly prayer in John 17. There are several moments within all of that where he's talking about being in the Father, but he doesn't stop there. He even says, for instance, in verses 22 through 23, the glory that you have given me, this is Jesus praying to God, I have given to them that they may be one as we are one. Now here's the next step. I am them and you and me. I want to push pause for a split second, because if we take this too far, we could bridge into things we don't want to. When we talk about our unity with Christ, if I were to take that too far, and I say, well, okay, I and them, that's Jesus in me, and God is in Jesus, so that means like I'm part of the Trinity, right? (laughs) Kick it out. (laughs) There's no bueno. Now, granted, I'm glad you all laughed. So you all are like, yes, we're not God. I get it. Okay. But we just want to make sure that we cover that base. So, all right. I'll leave it alone. Okay. So don't go there. I like this quote when we're talking about unity with Christ. Well, Christ relates to believers as Lord, Master, Savior, and Teacher. They are not merely associated with Christ as the object of his saving grace and love. Now, stick with me. It is not that Christians merely worship Jesus, obey him, and pray to him, though 
Surely those privileges would be enough. We could stop there and call it good, couldn't we? God doesn't stop there. And that's what the amazing part of it is. Rather, they are so intimately identified with him and he with them that scripture says they are united. He is in them and they are in him. We have an amazing unity. Now this unity in Christ, this Christ in us and we in Christ, in some shape or form, it kind of bleeds through all these other topics that we're going to talk about in, in some degree or another. It's because of Christ and our unity with him that we can experience these things. So, with our repentance, we're now dead to sin. We're completely unresponsive to it. And we are now, in the pursuit of serving and loving the Lord so much, we're said to be dead to sin, but we are now alive to Christ. So what we're getting at here is we're talking about a new life in Christ when we are beginning to discuss this union with Christ. And not only do we have a new life in Christ, we also, like I said, have been dead and been raised. These are the first two points we're kind of looking at here. Kind of moving expeditiously here, but we're going to make it. Okay? How about this? 1 Corinthians 1.30 and this idea of new life in Christ. Could I get a reader? By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Okay. So we talk about being dead and raised with Christ. That speaks of our new identity in Christ. We, we talk a lot about identity in today's the era. But as Christians, we are identified in him. Now here in particular, we're describing the new life. That being that Christ has gifted us with all the spiritual resources that we need in order to live a godly life. Anything that we need, we just find in him. He is the possessor of it. And since we are in him, we now can partake of those things. I.e., for instance, wisdom we need wisdom, we look to Christ. We need righteousness, we look to Christ. Our sanctification is done in Christ. Our redemption, in Christ. You get the idea? Everything spiritually that we need is found in Christ. Now, how about our actions? In some degree, this also goes into every aspect of our life in our actions. Colossians 2, 6-7. Can I get somebody to read that? Joe? Thank you. Therefore, as you have received... Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Mm -hmm. So with this idea of it's affecting every aspect of our life, we have our new identity in Christ, but all of our actions now can be done in Christ. What do you think that means? Think about that for a split second. Just for time restraints, I'm just going to let you think. Okay? So our actions can be done in Christ. Here's what I'm getting at. Everything we do can now be done in such a way that is pleasing and honorable to him. We used to do all these things that were not honorable and pleasing to him, but now, in Christ, we can now correctly obey we can correctly, let me give you kind of a list here of things that we can now do in Christ. If you kind of go in your Bible, you look about this verb or thing of which is done, and then you see it in Christ or coupled with in the Lord. This is kind of what you're going to hear. So everything, um, let's say Paul, for instance, speaks of to 
Paul is able to speak the truth in Christ. Romans 9.1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. So he's able now to speak the truth. How about he can have actually pride in his work? That's Romans 15.17. In Christ, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Paul describes he can command, he can beseech, he can exhort Christians. How about labor? That's in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I'll just give you this long, nice list here. We can now obey, submit, be strong, be encouraged, rejoice, agree, stand firm, live a godly life, have good behavior, be approved, work hard, be made confident, live, abide, and all these things done now in a manner which is pleasing to him, i.e. we are doing that in Christ with our unity. I'm going to go for it. Last little bit. We're going to move fast. I'm going to pray and we're going to get out of here. Okay? I want to make sure that we can kind of close this up here, though. All right. Last point is all Christians together are one in body in Christ. What do you think this is speaking of? What's the one body in Christ? The church. The church. Yes, thank you, Christ. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The church. We are now one now within him. But within him, now individually, we also have unity amongst each other. That's the beauty of the church, isn't it? We come from all different areas of the social class, so to speak. That doesn't matter here, does it? Shouldn't, right? And we're not saying that the church is perfect, but we know that within that, overall, there is a massive unity. Like I think of sometimes that people who would not be friends are now friends because they're both in Christ, therefore they share unity. That's why Christ says that we are to love the church. Think of a husband and a wife, for instance. Lauren and I are still individuals. We will give that, right? But we now have a union where we're considered one flesh. We're knit together. Just like that with Christ and the church, that unity. But then going deeper, we have unity. That's why, for instance, when one of us is in sorrow, we all feel sorrow. When one of us is rejoicing, we all rejoice. That's what we're talking about. Let me leave you this question, and I'm just going to go ahead and tail end here. But the hostilities have disappeared. Sinful division among people broken down. Worldly criteria, status, no longer applies within the church. Think of this as we kind of go from here. The world's watching us. What do you think that does to them? Lord willing, that creates a hunger and a desire. What is wrong with those people? But they say, I want in. Okay? I.e., that's our opportunity to share the gospel, by the way. Okay? I'm going to leave it with that. Thanks for sticking with me, guys. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the conversation. Lord, um, please guard our understanding. Please um, enlighten us to your truths. Please enable us to continue now to walk. Lord, Please, um, well, we just give you thanks, Father God. We give you thanks um, for our repentance, that we can be forgiven through Christ alone. Our sins have been washed away. Thank you, Father God, for so much bestowing upon us. You don't leave us where we were. You actually unified us with Christ. What a profound thing. We can understand that to some degree, but I think, Lord, there comes a point where that's so brilliant, that's so marvelous, that Christ is in me that there comes a point that I just got to give it up and just be like, that's amazing, that's wonderful, and give you all the praise and glory for it. Father, thank you for this time. Please be with Pastor Dave in the preaching of your word, Lord. 
and all of those who are leading and guiding us, and may we now go from here and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.